If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dan Weeks and Dave Woodard. I was going to sing my intro today with the accompaniment of a well-known Canadian pianist. But then I'm not the show. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott. Can you hang on a sec? Just hang on. Let me do something here. Just hang on a sec. I got to do this. Just hang on. Sheesh. All right. I got to get some peace and quiet in here. All right. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. Will Weber on the board. The kids all here. And uh, September 21st, last day of summer, September 22nd, uh, the autumn equinox, also called uh, September equinox, arrives Thursday, September tw- uh, 22nd. That's tomorrow. The date marks the start of fall in the northern hemisphere and spring in the southern hemisphere. There you go. So last day of summer today. That's it. And you know what? Hey, <laughs> not a bad one, I'd say. I think it's been a pretty good one, the twenty uh, summer of 2022, considering. And uh, also, coming out of the tail end of a global pandemic uh, certainly gives it an extra couple of stars as well. Uh, you can't argue with that. It's been a pretty good one. Although, uh, you might have noticed, it's starting to cool off a little bit, almost as if Mother Nature is uh, reading the calendar and uh, going to flip the switch. So there you go. All right, lots going on uh, today in the world, including the uh, UN getting at her and trying to solve the world's problems and trying to avoid being considered just a big dysfunctional a uh, group of people who who can't seem to get anything done. That was the message from uh, the leader. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on uh, in the show. Also, what it what has certainly been uh, front and center at uh, the United Nations, um, not so much climate change this time out, but uh, the Ukraine invasion, or sorry, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and uh, where it is now as we are entering. Uh, it's like I'm almost eight months since uh, this whole thing started. Many thought it wouldn't. Have last more than like eight hours so big issue with the united nations and uh that is what is on the world plate uh today uh as far as locally my goodness and we all remember uh that horrific shooting of a toronto police officer in mississauga uh ambushed uh, basically uh while he was on his lunch break uh andrew hong uh losing his life uh while he was on a training exercise teaching other younger officers uh how to be as great as he was his funeral uh was held today in toronto and uh just winding up man it is just uh an emotional emotional uh thing to see and all of these officers uh who are uh, standing shoulder to shoulder uh for their fallen friend it is uh it is something um i want to play a report from global news's matt carney on uh what has happened in toronto this morning fair party prepare to feed feed The procession to bring the fallen officer from a Thornhill funeral home ended at the Toronto Congress Centre just before 11 o'clock. Six officers carried the coffin draped in a Canada flag inside, followed by Hong's family. We saw his mother holding her husband firmly as they walked through those doors. Thousands and thousands of police officers are also inside, wearing their formal blues or formal reds for the Mounties in attendance. Another thing to note is the amount of officers who came to the service on police motorcycles. 
hundreds of them. Hong, of course, a member of traffic services, rode a motorcycle himself. His bike helmet and gloves are situated on a table beside the stage next to a framed photo of his headshot. Matt Cardi, Global News. Uh, obviously, uh, an extremely sad service going on or just finishing up in Toronto. Uh, many there, including the Premier Doug Ford, who um, I didn't realize this, but uh, uh, he has daughters. Three son-in-laws are police officers. I wasn't aware of that. Here's what the Premier had to say. Like many officers, we were told that Andrew was made of steel on the outside, but had a heart of gold on the inside. Uh, so very, very sad day in Toronto as uh, they lay to rest Andrew Hong, who uh, lost his life in Mississauga. And you remember the incident, uh, the shooting starting, uh, the incident starting in Mississauga with the uh, shooting, the murder of uh, Constable Hong, and then ended up in uh, Milton, where uh, the shooter went into a body shop where he worked, killed two people there. And then it all ended up uh, at the York Boulevard Cemetery in Hamilton where uh, the, the shooter was killed. And still trying to figure out exactly why all this happened. And of course, um, with the shooter now gone, uh, a bit more difficult to figure out exactly uh, what was going on in his mind and why he did what he did. But uh, either way, an extremely sad occasion for uh, members of the Toronto Police Service in the entire community, province, country, who uh, had to lay to rest a uh, a fallen police officer today, killed for no reason other than he was uh, wearing his uniform. All right, the other big story today, obviously the UN and um, and and the the these group this group of leaders that are trying to solve world issues, everything from uh, the war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, to climate change. And most importantly, trying to balance all of this uh, when some of the players aren't, uh, well, we'll say as honorable as others. Here's what Abigail Beeman had to say from Global News. This is the Prime Minister's first time at the General Assembly in four years. And there's a lot on the agenda officially as well as on the sidelines, all amid a stark warning from the Secretary General. Our world is in peril and paralyzed. The United Nations Charter and the ideals it represents are in jeopardy. We have a duty to act, and yet we are gridlocked in colossal global dysfunction. Guterres is calling on rich nations to tax oil and gas companies further, using the money to help countries struggling with food and energy prices and the effects of climate change. All those topics high on the UN's agenda, especially in the context of global food insecurity made worse by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Abigail Beeman, Global News, New York. All right. It's dry raw. All right. Trying to solve the world problems uh, in New York. We'll uh, have more on that. Also, uh, locally coming up this hour, boy, hard to believe Halloween is coming. And so are the festivities. We'll talk about that. We'll give you an update on the coyote situation in Burlington as well. And the government looking to scrap the vaccine mandates and the Arrive Canada app. What does that mean? We're going to ask the mayor of Niagara Falls. He's pretty happy. You know, it is September 21st. This is the last full first Sorry, this is the last full day of summer. Uh, fall arrives tomorrow night, uh, just after 9 o'clock. So enjoy. And you know, with the fall comes Halloween, huh? right? Uh, and the great thing is about 2022, we may not have to fire, uh, we won't have to fire candies down a chute to the kids that are at the end. <laughs> 
of the step anymore. Uh, or, or maybe we'll, you know, the slingshots or any of that. <laughs> Remember that from from Halloween gone by during a pandemic? And the great thing is, is about where we are in this uh, pandemic and, and everybody being vaccinated and such is things are returning to normal, including the scare in the square. It's a return to Harmony Square in Brantford, which is great news. Jennifer Middleton is with us, a coordinator of special events uh, with Brantford and is with us now. Jennifer, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. So I guess uh, everybody's getting excited because now we can start doing things that we weren't haven't done for a couple of years. Uh, this is the first scare in the square uh, scare in the square in a while. Yeah, we had one last year, but it was not at full capacity. We are back to everything that we had before and more, and there's a lot of fun activities for the family to come enjoy. All right. So to someone who's never been to this, what is it like? What happens? Explain it to us. Okay, so there are some free activities, there's some paid activities, there's hay rides, ghost hunts, haunted house, escape rooms, there's photo booths, there's live entertainment, there's roller skating, there's amusement rides for kids, you name it, it's happening. Uh, there's a zombie uh, run in the forest and the object is to not lose your flag football um, flags and not get attacked by the zombies. <laughs> <laughs> nice. There you go. So how did this all get started? How long have you been doing this? So this is this event's been running since 2008 and it just continues to grow and the reason it's on Thanksgiving weekend is it rained for years on Halloween and I got mm. so tired of it raining I said that's it I'm moving the event and so it's kind of a fall Halloween event but the good thing is is it gets parents ahead of time to get the costumes so they're not going to be point. running out last minute to get their costumes before Halloween they're already going to be set so it it works out and the biggest part of this event is the trick-or-treating, which happens on Saturday, October 8th, between 2 and 4. Kids are going to have more candy than they're going to know what to do with, and which is good for the parents as well. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So really, just the sugar fix will be dying down just as Halloween starts up again. It's perfect That's right. timing. You, you will not run out. You could even hand this candy out to the kids that come to your house if you want. Yeah, there you go. Just recycle it. That's a yeah. great idea. All right. Hey, like that has never happened before, right? Uh, so, uh, and this is a two-day affair. Yeah, it's Friday, October 7th from 5 to 10 p.m. And Saturday, October 8th from 12 p.m. to 10 p.m. And how did this come about? How did you get the idea? How did this all start? This was, uh, this started a few years before I started there. So my boss uh, had the idea and the community really rallied together. It's really not possible with um, the people that put this together like the haunted house people spend weeks preparing the details and the walls and everything like that for the haunted house and they've been with us since 2008 we've got the ghost hunters who love to do the paranormal ghost hunting and they're at the sanderson center this year and they've had some good activity there before so uh, they're looking forward to jumping back on board with that and the escape rooms um, they do two escape rooms uh, all day long and all night on Friday and Saturday. So, and it's just a nice, if you've never tried an escape room, it's a nice entry level. It's only seven minutes, so it's quick and easy and hopefully you get out. So somebody will get you out after seven minutes. (laughs) So this takes up the entire square. Like this is quite a spread out ordeal. Yeah, it actually, we shut down Deluzy Street between Market and King on Saturday for the trick-or-treating because it's just that big. There's probably about 800 to 1,000 kids that come out for the trick-or-treating alone. 
That is and a great idea. And then they do a costume contest afterwards. So we have um, local businesses donate prizes, and every kid gets to come up. And every child this year will actually receive their own gift. And then the winners of each category will win an additional prize. So what's different this year? Anything different this year? What do you learn from a pandemic, uh, you know, sort of putting all this stuff on pause? Um, it definitely, the community is really excited to come back to full-fledged Scare the Square. This event is rather large. Um, we are sticking with everything that we did in the past. And then this year, um, because the, the costume contest is the hardest for the judges, because every kid comes in an amazing uh, costume. We've added an adult costume contest this year, uh, because we love it when the adults get involved. So that mm. part is new. And then new is also giving every kid uh, a prize, which we have never done before. All right. If people want to find out more about Scare in the Square in Brantford, where do they go? What do they do? HarmonySquare.ca has all of the details. All right, there you have it. And it's happening uh, the weekend of October 7th, Friday, October 7th, and Saturday, October 8th. It's a scare in the square in Brantford. Uh, Halloween has returned uh, in its full effect uh, this year. Uh, Thanks so much for the time. Best of luck to you with it uh, this year, Jennifer. Good luck. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, you've heard and uh, we've discussed it here, the situation regarding uh, Burlington and coyotes. The city of Burlington says a third coyote uh, connected with recent attacks on residents was eliminated Tuesday morning in uh, an operation involving animal services, Halton Police, the Ministry of Natural Resources, and a certified wildlife professional. Uh, they've been tracking coyotes believed to be at the center of seven unprovoked attacks in the city. To to talk more about all of this and give us an update. Marianne Mead Ward is with us, Mayor of City of Burlington, and here now. Marianne, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me back. All right. A bit of an update here, Marianne. So a uh, third coyote has been put down. Uh, this was Tuesday morning. Any more calls since then? Has it calmed down at all? It has. Uh, we do believe, based on what the experts uh, from the ministry, from our certified wildlife professional and others are telling us, is that the seven attacks were the work of one family of coyotes uh, with the help of the victims themselves. We believe we identified and have now uh, killed all three of those. It is always traumatic to have to kill wild animals, uh, but of course public safety comes first. And I know the whole community is, is still a bit on edge. I know we all are, even though we're breathing a bit of sigh of relief here, uh, because we want to make sure that, uh, that that's it, that's all, there's no more. Uh, we do have animal control still in the field, in the neighborhoods, to uh, keep an eye out. And, uh, and of course, uh, we ask people to report to us anything they might see. Uh, we do think we've eliminated the immediate threat, uh, but we're going to keep on this for the foreseeable future. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, obviously, the, the uh, professionals thought this was a family unaware of how big this would be any reason to believe there might be more the only reason according to again the experts that these coyotes became aggressive is because they were being fed by humans they started to associate humans with the source of uh, their next meal Uh, they believe the biting in part was to get attention it was almost like a feed me response and as long as our community members don't feed coyotes, there there's no risk. Uh, we do have coyotes all over the city. We've received sightings mm-hmm. over many years. Uh, you know, I've lived in Burlington here for 22 years. 
uh, been on council for 12, and in that entire time until now, uh, we've had reports of coyotes. We've had I've seen coyotes in in my neighborhood over the mm-hmm. years. We've never had this situation, and and it's because uh, what changed is that they're being intentionally fed. And and so uh, and that's why it's highly localized. All of the bites within a two-kilometer range. Uh, mm. So so all of that evidence suggests that it is it is because of that feeding. And and so long as our community don't feed any wild animal, including cute little chipmunks, uh, you know, to get that photo of them feeding out of your hand, don't do it. That's uh, you're just fattening them up for the coyote, and that will start to attract and upset uh, upset that system where coyotes are supposed to be afraid. We really need them to continue to be uh, afraid of us and stay away from us in order to protect public safety, and that starts with our community not feeding any wild animals. Uh, boy, I agree with that. It's a person who's waiting to get a squirrel out of their attic, but I digress. Um, <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much. Um, uh, any more information, and you've said this before, that somebody is feeding, and that's obviously the concentration of why it's happening here. Again, I echo what you're saying, but in the area forever, and, and you know, you see them the odd time, but experts have said they're very shy. They don't want to go near humans really at all. So any more on, or is there an investigation on to finding out who is feeding them or tracking them down? That is absolutely part of what uh, the task force that we just set up that will be in operation for several years, uh, Coyote Management Task Force, uh, they are receiving reports from the community, and we really do ask the community to, uh, if you see something, say something. We had somebody report that they saw a truck uh, dumping meat into a ravine right in you know, the, the center of where these attacks are occurring. We had pictures sent to us from a resident of a bushel of corn and other frozen food that was left beside a garbage can on, on, a, on a bike path less than a, a block from where uh, the elderly lady was bit on her front yard. Um, so we don't, we don't have cameras uh, there. We don't know who left that. Uh, but if we, we will uh, absolutely receive tips from the community around if, if they have seen or witnessed anything, and, and we'll do our best when we know there's being food distributed to get rid of it as soon as possible. Our, our staff were out there as soon as we got the pictures and took it away. Um, but yeah, we, we need the community to continue to report if they see coyotes, uh, continue to report any behavior that they think is, is contributing to why coyotes might be uh, becoming more, more aggressive, and then we will deal with it from there. How do you know that uh, the coyotes that you're tracking are the ones that actually bit somebody or have been overly aggressive? Uh, that is the question I probably get asked the most, and yeah. again, it's with the help of uh, of the wildlife professionals. Uh, our because of our system, our longstanding system of asking people to report coyotes. Some submit photos. We have been aware of this family of coyotes before they started biting, uh, and then, of course, uh, I suppose worst of all, um, the, the victims themselves, uh, having been bitten, they got a real good up close and personal look yeah. at the coyote and were able to uh, identify that coyote based on the photos that we had submitted from, re- you know, from residents, and and then were tracking. And and one of them, uh, actually two of them, are quite uh, distinctive. One one was very mangy, uh, and and the other was a, a very bright copper. It was quite distinctive. Uh, so so we do believe, with the help of uh, the people who were bitten, 
uh, and with all of the photos that that came in that we did identify and and eliminate the right ones. Um, But this behavior will continue if people continue to feed coyotes because it is a learned behavior not to Mm. fear humans. So so that behavior itself, which is what contributed to this situation, has to stop or we're going to be right back where we were uh, before. But but yes, we are, we do believe we have eliminated the immediate threat and and those coyotes responsible for the seven attacks. Um, any thought or chatter about next season, next spring, uh, what happens over winter? Uh, could that uh, help the problem or hinder? As long as people don't feed the coyotes, and I, I know I sound a bit like a broken record No, no, here, makes but, sense. But as long as they don't feed the coyotes, we have nothing to fear from them because they're afraid of us and they'll stay away. We do know um, that in the spring is denning and pup season. There have been uh, situations in the past where we have identified and located dens, and then we, we block off the area so the public doesn't get too close. We let, we let the coyotes be. Uh, and 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 have their pups and and make sure that we're separated and then they move out of the den uh, later in the summer. Right now, they there is no more denning activity. The pups are grown, and uh, what they have instead is what's called rendezvous sites. They'll all run around and hunt, and then they come back together and have a meal. Um, and, and that's at a rendezvous site that can bounce around within that you know two to two to fifteen kilometer range. So that's that's the behavior that they that they have uh, that they're exhibiting now. But but spring is a particularly um, watchful time for us because of the pups, and we have a whole uh, we're developing a whole communication plan for the community to kind of tell them what to expect, uh, how to keep themselves safe, what not to do. Uh, we are going to get something out the door uh, next week to the entire city, and then we'll keep communicating over the next, you know, we'll call it the seasons of the coyote. Marianne, me more. No, go ahead. Well, we'll let them know what to expect at each season uh, because we know coyotes are going to live with us for a long time, and we want to keep uh, we want to take what we've learned through this experience to keep ourselves safe going forward. And of course, what have we learned here? Don't feed the wildlife. Uh, Marianne Mead Ward, Mayor, City of Burlington, third coyote identified and put down. Hopefully, that calms things down uh, for a while. But again, the message: please don't feed the wildlife. This does not help; it hurts. Uh, Marianne, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you so much. Appreciate the conversation. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. This was news that was coming out yesterday, and boy, you can hear the border mayor screaming and yelling and hipping and hollering uh, uh, from coast to coast. The Canadian government preparing to drop the COVID-19 vaccine ma- uh, mandates at the border, meaning people coming in don't have to show proof of vaccine. Uh, this is all at the end of September. This is uh, still not official, but uh, it looks like the direction that we're going. Also, the use of the controversial Arrive Can app. Uh, no need for that, then, is there? So that's uh, uh, obviously going to be an option and random testing we understand as well is one of those things that is uh, going to be uh, curbed as well come the end of the month let's bring in the mayor of niagara falls jim day odati he's with us now jim thanks for the time i hope you're doing well i'm uh, doing well scott thanks for having me you must be ecstatic about all of this well you know what i am it's been a long time coming but until i actually hear that it's official <laughs> directly from the government i'm not, i'm going to keep the cork in the champagne bottle I understand that. Uh, you've been asking for this. We've been talking about it for a while. Why do you think there's rumblings about this now? 
Well, I think there's there's no further arguments to be made in favor of keeping it. I mean, most of Europe has done away with it. Even New Zealand, who had some of the strictest border restrictions, have done away with it. Uh, there's no real compelling reason to have it. And I mean, I do hear from time to time uh, Minister Algabra talking about how wonderful it is. And we've said all along, well, if it's actually that great, then make it optional. And if it is, we'll line up to get it. In the same way that Nexus is optional hmm. and people line up because it does make things more efficient. But Arrive Can, it's been a disaster. Uh, how much, and, and we know that things have picked up in Niagara Falls, but that's largely domestic. Uh, how much do you figure you've lost this travel season through the summer by an American uh, visitation being down? Just in Niagara, the dollar is in excess of a billion dollars. And reason being, as you mentioned, exactly right, domestic tourism has returned to better than pre-pandemic levels, but international tourism, largely American, because the American tourism is the number one international guest that we that we receive, they're half of what they normally would be, half. And there's only one difference. It's the Arrive Can app. So it's been frustrating on our part. You know, the example, Scott, that we give is, family from Cleveland, they come every year to visit Niagara Falls because the majority of people that come into this country do so at land border crossings. So it's what we mm-hmm. call the rubber tire market. They drive here. So they wake up, they're having breakfast. It's a nice day. They grab their passports. They head for the border. They get here. They don't have uh, roaming. They don't have access to Wi-Fi. They're asked questions about their vaccination status, which not a lot of people carry that with them. They're told they have to download the Arrive Can app. They're forced to lie because they're told that they have to have a quarantine address, which they're planning to go home that day. It's just a big disaster. It causes undue wait times on the border, very negative experiences. And the frustrating part, you know, today we celebrated the life of Officer Hong. And and Mm. that's what our border guards are supposed to be doing, keeping guns and drugs and criminals out of this country. Instead, they're helping administer the Arrive Can app. So it's not a good use of our resources, and it's been killing international tourism. So we're saying it's been three years. Enough is enough. It's time to open the doors. It's amazing, too, if you travel any other place around the world, how it just seems so obsolete here. It's, it just seems so behind. Well, it's very frustrating, you know, and, and we ha- the, the government has not caught up with public sentiment and where we're at. And just watching people and how they're carrying on, we've learned that we're going to have to live with COVID. However that is, if it means you got to wear a mask from time to time, if it means you need to get vaccinated or boosted from time to time, but we've learned that we're going to have to live with it. We can't hide in our basements any longer. We've got to get, got to get on with life. And a lot of important things have happened over the last few years. And many people have missed them because of borders being largely closed. And especially, I feel bad for some senior citizens who don't have smartphones, don't know how to operate them. And I look at my dad as an example. He's got a flip phone. Uh, he's 80. And him and my mom would love to go over the river, as we call it, every Thursday and go shopping, go out for dinner. They haven't done that in three years. And I know based on the volume of calls that I've been receiving, there are so many people in that exact same boat that they're looking forward to resuming some of the activities, seeing their family and their friends on both sides of the border. So this has been a long time coming. There's been a lot of collateral damage because of it. And we're just hoping the sooner we can put it behind us, the better. 
Uh, leaders uh, meeting in New York for the U.N. Uh, uh, meeting summit and such. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden said on an, on an, in an interview the other day that it's over uh, and that we just, as you said, had to live with it and move on, get vaccinated, do what we need to do. How significant is it when someone like that says that? Well, I think it's huge. When you've got the president of the United States, our, our neighbor and number one trading partner, when you have the World Health Organization alluding to the same, when you've got the medical experts like Dr. Zane Chagla, uh, infectious disease expert at McMaster and St. Joe's and Hamilton, when you have them all saying the same thing, it's time. It's time to remove these restrictions. They're not serving any, any positive purpose. Let us get on with our lives. So I think it's very important and it's very powerful when you've got these types of influencers. They're all saying the same thing now. What does this do for Niagara Falls? Say it does happen September 30th going into, say, the Christmas season. Well, you know, it's a good news, bad news thing. So we're grateful that it's finally happened. We're frustrated that we lost another tourism season because, you know, as I've said before in your show, Scott, 40,000 people here in Niagara, they count on tourism to pay their bills, to pay their mortgage, feed their family. So it's in one way, it's a little too late. But on the other hand, we're like, we'll take what we can get. So we're into what we call our shoulder season. So the convention business has been pretty good. It's bounced back. We're coming into the Winter Festival of Lights season kicking off in November. So it's time that we can slowly start to rebuild. But unfortunately, 80 it's the 80-20 rule. 80% of the revenue comes in during the summer. And that's the money that all the tourism operators use to stay afloat for the rest of the year. So what we're asking now, we're asking, let's have a major grand opening. And what I suggested to the federal and provincial tourism ministers before was, why don't we have a grand reopening of Canada, have a massive ribbon cutting, get the prime minister and the premiers together and let the rest of the world know we're open and follow that up with a big marketing campaign where we roll out the red carpet because we know Americans love Canada. They love Canadians. They can't wait to get back. And let's give them a good excuse to know that we're open again. That's why he's the mayor of Niagara Falls. Jim Diodati with us talking about the possibility. It looks good that by the end of the month, uh, the scrapping of the max- vaccine mandates and arrive can it will go into effect and make uh, their lives a lot easier. Jim, as always, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thanks very much, Scott. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and he is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Scott, I'm good. How are you? So far, so good. Uh, UN meeting in New York, uh, calling itself dysfunctional. Uh, what is the priority of uh, this uh, series of meetings, and is Russia grabbing the headlines here? Well, they have these meetings every September, and it's all the world. It's really sort of a another summit following on, uh, ironically, the one they had at the Queen's funeral, and they focused on the different challenges that are at play. I guess, as you outlined, you, the Ukraine is focus uh, key uh, key focus this year, as is climate change. Or the, I mean, Guterres, the Secretary General, is pretty damning on the state of the planet. So. Um, probably right to be, but whether anybody listens to what happens at the New Year in uh, in New York, what did Bruce Coburn say? Uh, say Scott, if a tree falls, seldom nobody would hear. That may be the case with the UN too. Uh, how do you balance the situation with climate change and the energy crisis that's going on in Europe with this Russian invasion of Ukraine? Uh, are, are we are we looking at the wrong solution? Are we getting distracted from solving the actual problems here? 
Well, they're, they're co- Scott, it's complicated. No one will yeah. tell you that. It, it is yeah. complicated. I mean, look, part of the Ukraine issue, strife in the Ukraine, look, is benefiting Canada in a different way, isn't it? Look at the big announcement we just had in Newfoundland and Labrador over the, the, the hydrogen, potential production of hydrogen with Germany. Uh, however, in real immediate terms, as we saw with Putin today, uh, he says he's not fooling around with um, with nuclear weapons and that he would use them. So while we may benefit with the opening of energy markets, I, I think we'd trade that benefit for removal of the fear of, uh, of, of an actual nuclear attack. Not that that is going to happen, not that this is new for Putin, but you can't just dismiss it outright. Uh, obviously ramping up just as these meetings are going underway, announcing 300,000 Russians will be called up. Uh, how does that play at the U.N.? I think that has to be worrisome. I mean, I'm sure some of the uh, the countries uh, who've been allied with Russia or have relationships with Russia, have historic attachments, uh, aren't thrilled to see that. Uh, I think if you're near Russia now and you haven't, suffered at the hands of their territorial expansionism, this is, uh, has got to be worrisome for you. So, you know, this is classic Putin, though. He wants to dominate. He wants to be the subject of conversation. He wants all that comes with this. Uh, he's almost taunting them to engage in conflict with him because, again, you know, there's some suggestion this benefits at him at home because Russians through the state media are fed a diet of uh, of uh, international expansionism that stops at Russia's doorstep, and he has to fight back. Uh, is that still is that message still resonating with Russians? I mean, we're hearing uh, you know Baltic states banning tourism. Is this starting to affect Russians more and more? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I haven't been to Vladivostok lately. I don't know if you have, my friend, but I, I have no idea. Uh, my sarcasm aside, it's hard to tell what really is happening in Russia. Some of the foreign news agencies that are reporting from there, you know, are even limited in what they can say. So it's it's hard to tell. I don't know if we're getting the truth about that. All right, let's switch gears. Uh, Pierre Polyev in the House. Uh, obviously, the Prime Minister not there yet. He's busy at the UN and has business there. Uh, Christia Freeland handling the duties today. Your thoughts on the one that campaigned and the one that's in the House? <laughs> Well, it's no surprise. I mean, this this every September you have this uh, UN General Assembly, but I think Trudeau's maybe sending a little message to Polyev. You're going to have to wait for me to show up there, fella. Uh, whether that's taunting or not, I don't know. Uh, I didn't see question period today. I, I, well, I saw the I saw the visuals, which were quite telling. Christia Friedland's face was priceless when I was watching it. I don't know the words that were said, and I saw Pierre in full demonstrative form. But what I saw from yesterday, I mean, he's continuing to push the message that worked for him in the leadership race. And uh, that that I think he's going to continue. And tomorrow, I'm sure he's going to be very much more pointed with the prime minister and challenge what they're doing for all Canadians as it relates to inflation relief. How would he compare to an Aaron O'Toole or... Uh, Andrew Shear, what have you. How are things going to change? He's a better house performer for whatever that may matter. Like so much attention, Scott is being paid to question period today. But other than you and me talking about it and others just discussing it, do you think the average Canadian's paying that much attention to it? Probably um, not. But I guess I guess my point, Tim, is I'm just glad that somebody's holding somebody to account. Yeah, he's a bit like. Because um, I mean, I mean, there hasn't been any opposition for what seems like 
centuries. So yeah, I'm just better, glad that somebody's holding someone to account. Yeah, well, fair enough. Uh, he's more in the vein of Tom Mulcair, and, and Tom, who I know, might like that uh, that comment. But he's, He he's was a good. great opposition leader. I thought yeah, he was one of the best opposition leaders. Yeah, exactly. He's a strong performer. Pierre knows the house. He knows how to play the game. He'll be tougher on Trudeau than, say, O'Toole or Shear was. Uh, so the Conservatives will get a, a, a get some a feeling and mojo from all of that. Uh, <laughs> so is uh, this all been overblown? Which house? The the big the big fight. I mean, yes, the big fight because yes, that's what I, it I mean, is. Look, tell me, tell me. I was joking with somebody earlier. You and I feel I feel like I'm having a conversation with my grandfather, and we were sitting uh, around the dinner t- <laughs> luncheon table and we're drinking Dubonnet and talking about oh, how it went in question today. Scotia was mighty good. Um, so yeah, I think it's being overblown. But look, it's it's part of the the battle lines. It works for internal politics. They'll cut and slice a million videos that they'll push out if they're happy with performance and connect with humans that way, as opposed to drinking the Dubonnet and then of course you save the sherry for later. And what about kissing the cod? Does that fit anywhere in here? Oh, no, you oh. can't kiss cod with sherry or Dubonnet. You need dirty old rum for that, Scott. Come on! Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. As always, thank you for your time, Tim. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Russia's calling, calling up more soldiers to join the fight. And the Kremlin is organizing a sham referenda to try to annex parts of Ukraine, an extremely <clears throat> significant violation of the U.N. Charter. U.S. President Joe Biden, U.N. meetings uh, this morning talking about uh, Russia ramping things up. Let's uh, talk about that. And New York Attorney General suing Donald Trump. Reggie Giacchini is with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. And with us now, Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. How much uh, does the buildup of, of troops, so there's rumors there's 300,000 being uh, called up, obviously Biden talking about it at the U.N. today. Uh, how concerned is he with this uh, Russian buildup? Well, I mean, I think he's as concerned as most other nations are uh, around the world. And what they see is an unnecessary and unjust uh, kind of repositioning of not just troops from within Russia, but citizens from within Russia, uh, now that this kind of um, conscription has been put in place for the reserves throughout uh, Russia to get in line. And I think that there is that um, strong condemnation coming not only from within Ukraine, but from within uh, the NATO bloc, uh, but also just a legitimate fear here uh, that the United Nations sees this as an attempt to potentially erase a sovereign nation uh, from the map and to allow for Russia to simply cross a border that it was not invited across. Uh, you know, I think that when you hear those kinds of words from uh, the president, who obviously has uh, that kind of strength in the position that he holds as president of the U.S. when he's speaking to the U.N., obviously it carries some kind of weight. But at the end of the day, that's pretty much all he can do, Scott, because, you know, once you go beyond that, if you go to the U.N. Security Council, Russia has a veto and they can veto pretty much anything that they want. So it becomes an opportunity to talk but it's harder for action to actually take place. Uh, at the beginning, opening statements of uh, the head of the UN saying that this has become a dysfunctional organization. How do you how do you balance all of this when Russia's got a part of it and, and you're trying to solve issues? 
Yeah, I mean, look, it becomes problematic, uh, and and you know the dysfunction is is kind of there to see in plain sight, and it was in the very first weeks of when this war uh, started, because uh, at a moment where they were trying to deplore the actions of, of Russia, states that are linked or aligned with Russian beliefs, whether it was China or Venezuela or Cuba or Syria, they either voted with Russia to go against it, or they abstain from the vote because they understand. Uh, someone like China, that they need to rely on Russia, but they also need to rely on the U.S. So they took a more neutral position. What does that do? It doesn't do anything. What does, you know, what does calling out the actions of Russia do at the United Nations? It leads them to, to kind of quarrel with each other. So at the end of the day, while they're trying to ensure that this comes to a global stage, this, this kind of um, ongoing effort by, by Russia to, you know, do whatever it's intending to do here, it's getting the global attention, but at the end of the day, it, it's not stopping Moscow. And I think that's where some of the concern is, is that you have all of the global leaders sitting with each other and they're still not able to make a move. And I think that's where some of that concern is. All right, let's move on to uh, Donald Trump. The New York Attorney General has sued Donald Trump and his organization for fraud. Does this have legs or is this just more meat for the base? Well, I mean, it has some legs here uh, because a lot of this information uh, was put forth by Donald Trump and the organization itself many years ago over over a period of a decade, really, from 2011 to 2021. Uh, and what it showed was that some of the assets that were being held by the Trump organization had been um, you know, over-exaggerated to the kind of nth degree here uh, to certain points of where Trump's apartment within Trump Tower had been uh, clocked as something like 33,000 square feet, whereas ultimately, when you actually go and measure it, it's only 11,000 square feet. So, you know, huh. this, this does have legs because uh, it's hard to actually, you know, refute the numbers when you can go out and measure something. I think it's going to be a difficult pull, however, for the attorney general because this is going to go to trial and it's going to get difficult because Donald Trump is not someone who uses email. Donald Trump is not someone who has people from within the company who are often going to turn on him. So it's easy to file the lawsuit. It's going to be difficult to kind of present it and carry it. How does this change the politics of the day moving forward? Uh, obviously, whether it's midterms or the next presidential election. Well, I mean, look, number one, this is um, this breaks with the norms, what the attorney general has done here, because she announced uh, a lawsuit and and made criminal referrals to the IRS and to the Southern District of New York within a couple of weeks of an election. And that's something that we obviously don't see, especially when it comes to the federal level. I don't know if this is going to move any needles, at least when it comes to Republicans. They're not going to think anything differently of this. They're going to continue this as a kind of chant that this is a political witch hunt in that someone that Donald Trump has seen as a thorn in his side for years now is simply continuing on with uh, with something he sees as driven by a political agenda. Democrats are simply trying to rally to say, look, this is baggage that the former president is carrying with him. We need to get him out of politics. But ultimately, they see him as a liability to the Republican Party. Uh, and they say, look, he's done things that are wrong. He needs to you know, uh, face the consequences for that. So Democrats are saying this as, look, if he's going to announce that he's going to run, this can be the Republicans' problem, and we can go and focus on the things that we need to focus on. Uh, and these are all allegations, uh, nothing to do with the presidency. This is his own company and his own personal dealings, his own personal finance. This is all from before the presidency. However, there is an opportunity here for them to look into options uh, where he was potentially, uh, where the books were essentially being cooked while he was the president. Because remember, Donald Trump owned the old post office in Washington, D.C., which became the Trump International Hotel. And that was not kind of a part of the, the conglomerate groups that was owned by 
uh, the Trump name. Uh, and there is a risk here that some of that money was also overinflated as well. So there is a kind of you know broad range that they're looking at. Millions upon millions of documents were score, uh, were, were kind of uh, poured over over the last three years. Uh, so this is kind of wide ranging, and it doesn't just impact Trump. It's three of his kids as well, Ivanka, Don Jr., and Eric, along with people from within the organization. So this is a far-reaching lawsuit. Uh, and look, if he loses, this could cost a quarter billion dollars in penalty. So it's also not just a little bit of chump change. Uh, we remember the big stink over uh, him being the only president not to reveal his tax records. Did we? Did, where did that ever go? Does it matter? Well, Is it a moot point now? Uh, no, I think it still matters to Democrats because they're ultimately trying to get to the bottom of some of the financial uh, uh, dealings when it came to Donald Trump. Again, especially when he was in the Oval Office and had... Uh, financial transactions and interactions with foreign leaders that were staying uh, at the Trump Hotel. Uh, the House Oversight Committee has actually received some of the uh, financial statements from the former president to be able to go into that. The issue here is, Scott, is that Democrats are running out of time. They potentially risk losing control of the House. So the investigations that they're trying to kind of carry forward or potentially wrap up, whether it's Trump's taxes or the January 6th committee, they have an expiry date uh, of November, and if they lose, it becomes kind of a sitting duck Congress, and they're not going to be able to accomplish much. So they're watching time run out here, but at the end of the day, they say that they have important work to do, and they want to get it out to the public as quickly as they can, because ultimately that can have an impact, whether Trump is on the ballot or not, on how an election is held. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, a new report from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation shows that while our government is hiking taxes, and I think that's what we're hearing in the House of Commons this week, it's not so much what we have, but they're on schedule to keep going up. Uh, 51 others... Uh, 51 other countries have provided tax relief. Let's bring in Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, and is with us now. Franco, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. It's always great to be on with you. So in your latest column, you're talking and comparing other countries and how they are giving some sort of tax relief, some sort of help during whatever it is we're going through this post-pandemic, and Canada that doesn't seem to be uh, doing as much for those that are in need, struggling. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, look, first, I think I have to say this. At the very least, it should have been a no-brainer for the federal government to just not raise taxes during the middle of the pandemic, right? When people were losing their jobs, when businesses were shutting down, uh, and also while inflation was reaching a nearly four decades high. They shouldn't have been raising taxes, but unfortunately, the federal government did. It raised the carbon tax three times since the beginning of the pandemic. It raised payroll taxes three times since the beginning of the pandemic. And if all that drives you to drink, well, unfortunately, the government also raised taxes every time you go pick up that bottle of Pinot Noir to, to, to enjoy with your better half. So we've seen the federal government raise taxes over the last few years. And we found that there was 51 national governments around the world that provided their citizens with relief. And a lot of our industrialized peers, because there was more than half of the G7 countries, more than half of G20 countries, and two thirds of OECD countries provided their citizens with relief. 
Uh, talk a little bit more about the liquor tax and how some of these are accelerated, which means they just go up automatically. Because I remember at one time, they used to, it used to be an election issue. You know, somebody's going to raise the sin taxes. Oh, no. But now it just kind of happens and nobody knows. And I, I was talking to somebody I know who's in the liquor business and, and told me in the summer, you just wait. There's a big increase coming. Uh, explain, because I don't think a lot of Canadians even know this is going on. Yeah, well, first, I think it's going to be uh, an election issue again. Uh, because we had Mr. Pierre Polyev on the Canadian Taxpayers podcast, and he committed to us that he's going to scrap the escalator tax. And what the escalator tax is, it was brought in in the 2017 budget, and essentially these excise taxes on beer, on wine, on spirits, they go up every single year without a vote in the House of Commons. Now, yeah. this is a, a very undemocratic because there's a very important ideal that uh, is called no taxation without representation. So if politicians think that you're not paying enough tax, then they should be able to force to vote on the tax increase in the House of Commons. But this automatic escalator tax allows them to raise these excise taxes on alcohol every single year, and it moves with inflation without yeah. having to vote on it. And so that and means that- we're all... Exactly, because we're facing sky-high inflation right now. Well, next year's increase is going to be even higher. And I guess he was saying, this person was saying, nobody really noticed because inflation has been quite low of late, but bang, it went up to 8%, and all of a sudden that's reflected in these prices. Yeah, well, that's exactly right, and I hear next year's price increase could be even higher because there's always a bit of a lag. But everyone's feeling it right now, and the real problem is is that when you're going to the gas pump, when you're going to uh, the grocery store, you're feeling prices through the roof. And now when you're going to the liquor store, you're also feeling the pain of higher prices there. All right. So this this latest article is about uh, cutting government taxes or giving us some relief or not at least raising them anymore. And you're talking about other countries that are doing this. Who is doing this? What are they doing? Well, and a lot of our peers as well. So Australia, significant gas tax relief. They cut their gas taxes by 50%. France, they're cutting electricity taxes. You got Germany, you got Ireland, you got India, you got Italy, you got Netherlands, New Zealand. They're all cutting gas taxes. Norway's cut consumption taxes. Portugal's cut gas taxes as well. Spain cut electricity taxes. The United Kingdom also cut gas taxes. Uh, But here's a good story. South Korea, they've cut gas taxes twice. They initially lowered them by 20%, and then they reduced it again to 30%. And remember... Our federal carbon tax has gone up three times during the middle of the pandemic, but it's going to continue to go up to nearly 40 cents per liter of gasoline by 2030. Now, I want to point out something that both the Alberta government, the Ontario government, and the Newfoundland and Labrador government have cut fuel taxes, and we've seen success there. Uh, Alberta cut its fuel taxes in April. In May, you had a University of Calgary economist pointing to the gas tax relief as, as lowering or easing inflation. But also Stats Canada pointed to Ontario Premier Doug Ford's uh, gas tax cut in July as, uh, as a good movement to ease the burdens of inflation here in Ontario. All right, Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. A new report from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation shows that while our government is hiking taxes, 51 other countries are providing tax relief. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. UN summit going on in New York. Uh, what is coming out of the meeting of this uh, world, of all these world leaders? And what about the UN uh, chief saying the world is in peril and then in the same breath saying that uh, the UN has become dysfunctional? All this while, as I speak live, uh, the Ukrainian President Zelensky is addressing uh, the UN, while of course uh, member <laughs> members of the UN are at war. Uh, let's bring in David Carmet, Professor Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. He's with us now, David. Thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Thank you very much. I hope you're well. Yes, thanks for the time. Uh, this is obviously not very encouraging when the UN chief says the world is in peril and then all in the same sentence says that the, the, the UN is dysfunctional. What are we supposed to take away from this? Well, the obvious conclusion is that the UN uh, has never been successful unless all the countries that are part of it, which is essentially all member nations, uh, are willing to work together to a common end. And so far we haven't seen a lot of overlap or commonality amongst the uh, members in the last 10, 15 years. And so to say that the UN is dysfunctional is to say that international affairs, international politics is at a loggerheads and countries are simply not willing to compromise or even negotiate over very complex problems. Is it a help or is it, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say a case in point would be climate change, which interestingly enough is something the UN Secretary General has made a big issue out of in the last a couple of months noting that we're at a point of no return, which we've heard before, so the alarmism is kind of wearing thin, but the the point is that there's really limited action on that front. Um, There are reasons for that, I think, um, which we can get to in a minute. Uh, Russia and China, both members, how is this not a conflict of interest, especially as uh, right now we're watching live uh, President Zelensky of, of Ukraine address the UN? Well, it's not so much a conflict of interest. I mean, uh, the, every nation can send representatives. The Chinese and the Russians don't have representatives that will be speaking uh, or addressing the uh, UNGA, the UN General Assembly, this time around. Uh, it's a, a, nor will, uh, I believe, Justin Trudeau or his uh, foreign minister, Melanie Jolie. But that doesn't mean there isn't an opportunity to talk on the, the sidelines and the back halls and back rooms and so get your agenda on the table in other ways. But we're not even at that point where there's room for negotiation on some of the most crucial issues. If, if there's a uh, conflict of interest, I guess, if you want to describe it that way, it would be at the UN Security Council. The UNGA, uh, by way of contrast, is simply a way for all countries to get their, 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 uh, their agendas on the, uh, things that matter to them on the agenda and also make sure that their voices are heard. The UN Security Council is a co- completely different animal uh, where both China and Russia hold hold some veto power. Uh, what is on the agenda? What is the priority here? Is it climate change? Is it the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Because it seems that this is a lot to have on one plate at once. Uh, well, okay, so let's start with the, the obvious uh, reference that the uh, UN uh, Secretary General made to the Ukraine crisis. I think what he's suggesting is that there's no path forward uh, for resolution until all members who are p- party to this UN General Assembly are willing to find some compromise over the most thorny of this, issues. And yet what we heard today from President Biden was very much a one-sided perspective, blaming one nation and not really opening up uh, space for a negotiated solution. So I, I hesitate to say that, uh, all, that the United States is responsible for where we, we are right now, but sh- surely that 
in the in the absence of a negotiated solution, what we're seeing is a gradual escalation of the conflict on the on the part of Russia. And you know where we are today. You just mentioned it: the mobilization of 300 additional forces, with more to come possibly, and also the threat of uh, nuclear war uh, looming in the background, however unlikely that might be. At some point, someone has to step forward and say, "This is time for dip diplomacy." And the the venue for achieving diplomacy is supposed to be the UN General Assembly. Uh, is is a negotiation even possible with Russia taking the stance that it is? Um, you know, it's 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 pretty obvious they're calling up more troops. It's obvious that this wasn't as easy a task as they originally thought with the invasion of uh, of Ukraine and such. What negotiations can be had that won't um, that, that won't take advantage of Ukraine? Probably none. I mean, this is the nature of compromise, where mm. all parties who are uh, who perceive themselves as uh, uh, having some potential interest in the conflict will have to uh, achieve an outcome where the, there's, there's some form of compromise. And this this currently isn't a possibility given the territorial claims that Russia is making. But one has to realize that the alternative of that, which the Russians are presenting to the world, is something much more grim. And so at some point, uh, as long as Ukraine is um, well-armed and continually well-trained by the, the, the Western powers, most notably the U.S., there will simply be no room for negotiation. So, escalation uh, is a is a uh, is a reality. Unfortunately, Altern alternatively, I suppose it would be uh, one of America's goals to see Russia fall into collapse, which I don't think would be in anyone's interest. Or alternatively, to see Putin removed from power. But these create openings and uncertainties that I think uh, we don't want to even entertain. So the, the truth is that uh, for some negotiated solution to be achieved, it will have to be compromised on all sides. Now, there are ways in which that could be done uh, beyond simply territorial uh, uh, partition. It could involve, for example, membership in NATO being up for grabs, as well as membership in the European Union. But I believe that uh, President Zelensky is determined to rally the, the, the General Assembly to his side, and as long as he's determined to do that, I think there'll be some degree of uh, hesitancy to follow in the America's America's footsteps towards what is arguably a, a, a potentially global war. So uh, should yeah. so should the allies stop reinforcing Ukraine? I think they need to um, find a solution in which U Ukrainian lives will not be uh, continually uh, at risk. Um, they have to be realistic about the likelihood that Russia is going to give up Crimea as well as, as, well as eastern Ukraine to Donbass without a fight, without considerable loss of life. David Carbat right. with us, Professor Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. David, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Okay, thank you. Russian President Vladimir Putin has announced a mobilization of 300,000 reservists and has warned the West that he's not bluffing when it comes to nukes. All of that while the UN is meeting in New York and as we speak, uh, uh, Ukraine President Zelensky is addressing uh, the United Nations and saying basically, hey, this can happen to you. We have to put a stop to this and obviously looking for more support. Uh, it continues to get complicated. Let's bring in Dr. Arnie or sorry, Dr. Arne Kislenko, uh, International Relations Program, Trinity College, University of Toronto, and Department of History, Toronto Metropolitan University, and is with us now. Arne, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, your thoughts on uh, Russia announcing today, while everyone is at the UN, that they're going to ramp up and uh, they're not bluffing when it comes to nukes, and they're adding three hundred thousand uh, to their uh, to their military. What are your thoughts? Well, it's a very significant development. It, it, it's really on two fronts. The obvious is that it means a very likely a protracted war. That Russia is not going home anytime soon, and that it intends to stand its ground. Uh, and presumably to wrest away by all means the uh, the eastern part of that country for good. That's why they're having you know so-called referendums this weekend to make it formally part of Russia. So it's a dangerous escalation, but it also signifies that there's a real sense of panic in Russia. I, I think um, you know we shouldn't forget that there was a, a promise that Putin made that this would all be over. It wasn't even a war; it was a limited military yeah. expedition. It'll be over in a few days. Uh, now we're seven months long, and he is uh, he and his forces are getting pushed out of the the territory. So it, it's very um, significant in that regard. And as we've seen in the last few minutes, even there are protests that are popping up, small scale but uh, significant protests that are happening in Russia, because now it's really bringing the war home to the Russian populace. What about Biden's reaction in his uh, his speech today at the UN? Yeah, very predictable. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, this is uh, another opportunity for him to to beat the drum of Western uh, su- uh, Western nations supporting Ukraine and to keep that coalition together. Um, I, I think in in private, obviously, Biden and other leaders are deeply concerned about uh, Putin with his back up against the wall. That's where his obvious threat about uh, possible nuclear retaliation comes into effect and saying famously, this is not a bluff. Um, would suggest that they have to be careful about uh, their support, just like they always have been. And and what that means now is that if Ukraine continues its counteroffensive, and those are fairly remarkable, they've been pretty quick and pretty successful, um, if that coincides with Russia's decision to draw these formally into the Russian Federation, the disputed territories, technically speaking, Putin would say, well, if you attack those provinces, you attack Russia. And that would be, of course, a provocation that he and now presumably other Russians would consider an attack on the mother country. So the the line, if you like, becomes increasingly blurry uh, and also very, very dangerous. Uh, one expert we had on earlier today said uh, should be less chatter of, of military aid and more chatter of negotiation. Is that possible? How do you do that? How do you yeah. negotiate without Ukraine giving up everything? Well, that's a great question, and that, that really is the, the crux of the matter. I mean, personally speaking, I think there's basically three ways this is going to come out. You know, the first is very unlikely. It's a total Ukrainian victory, um, and that would push Putin to the brink, and that's certainly, you know, we can't rule out, even if many people say it's not likely to happen, we can't rule out, you know, a nuclear exchange, even tactical nuclear weapons. It's a doomsday scenario. Uh, the second option is that there's a, you know, really a kind of unfortunate deal here in which Putin gets a ceasefire, uh, the destruction stops, but it would, of course, tragically disappoint Ukrainians. It would it would end that country's existence as it's been known, and it would splinter the Western alliance. So I, I think there is a third option that now increasingly comes on the table, given Putin's desperation, which is that, um, you know, maybe there's going to be some sort of movement against him. Some people are even talking about, you know, the palace coup, guys, and 
in the inner circle start to, to realize how dangerous he's become. Um, maybe the Russian people, we haven't seen signs of that, but this is a country that spawned revolutions before, um, who would basically say it's enough. Now you're calling up reservists. The 300,000 are men that have military service, um, but of course not not in the you know in the immediate sense. So they need to be retrained and so on. But every Russian knows what this means. It means the war has gone horribly wrong and it's going to get worse. And so in that case, the pressure for negotiation may come from within. Um, I think, unfortunately, the reality is, is that Ukraine will probably have to uh, accept eventually the tragic fact that some of those provinces, uh, the disputed territories. Uh, may be gone from them forever. And that's going to be a horrible price to pay for Ukrainians. But certainly the Americans and other countries will want to favor some negotiation. And and Putin, uh, you know, he's not going to settle for anything less than that. Is that ever over, though? I mean, isn't that just a simmering pot waiting to bubble over? Absolutely. And that, that's why, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be dark here. It doesn't mm-hmm. require my, my participation. But there's not really a happy ending uh, for right. this, um, you know, for Ukraine in particular. Uh, I, I, I really do want to emphasize, of course, that what the Ukrainians have managed is, is really remarkable. Yeah. And I don't know a single expert on the planet that thought that Ukraine would actually be able to hold off this long and then even advance against the Russians. That speaks to their courage, tenacity, proficiency, but also to the really dismal state of the Russian military. That's pretty obvious now. Um, huge numbers, of course, and more to come if necessary, um, but you know, really not very effective in the field. Uh, and that's because its leader is detached, and and the men around him are detached. So that doesn't that doesn't you know that doesn't serve well for a short term fix. It's not likely that this is going to be a happy ending anyway. We're probably going to revert uh, to something of the status quo, uh, you know, roughly speaking geographically. But that means you're going to have a lot of tensions in Ukraine for many years to come, uh, and I think that's just a sad truth. Uh, you talked about protests within Russia. We chatted about this uh, early on in all of this, wondering how Russians would react to it. They didn't seem to mind or care about the the sanctions and such. And many said that uh, the Russians continue to bank uh, to back Putin. We are seeing the odd protest here uh, come come as a result of these announcements, as you're yeah. suggesting. But do you believe that that Russians uh, at one point will say enough is enough? I do. I, I, I'm, and maybe it's because I'm a historian and I've you know, known that it's happened before, right? We didn't think the Soviet Union would come to an end. We didn't think communism would come to an end in that country. And if you go all the way back to, to 1917, I'm sure people thought the Tsar would last forever. So, so this is a place, historically and in the contemporary, where people will eventually have, say enough is enough. The, the magical question is how much will they take? And these are, you know, this is a country which does have an opposition. It's been ruthlessly suppressed, especially of late. Um, it has identifiable leaders that are still alive. Whether they can actually pull together the people is the big question. Um, and you're starting to see there's an expatriate population, right, of Russians who live abroad who are very active in this sense. It's been disappointing for Western countries, for sure, but they've never really been through that. Right. So, you know, to, to say the Russian people are lazy or stupid or something like that is really um, unfortunate because, you know, they many are very easily, uh, you know, sheep in this case. They're going along with the boss. They harbor deep nationalist sentiments. That's true. But we don't know the full gauge of, of the public opinion because it doesn't exist. Um, but to say it's never going to happen, I think, is kind of missing the point. Uh, we're not even sure. A lot of experts talk about whether... 
you know, Putin's fully in control of the country. And that would certainly suggest there are other elements. You've seen it. Over the last few weeks, you've seen how Putin has been uh, criticized in the media openly, but by people of a further, you know, nationalist ilk of the far right. And that's certainly a game that he's playing, right, to, to show his populace that he's actually sane and moderate. And that if I'm not here, you know, there's other guys worse than me, right? People mm. talking about turning Britain into a nuclear wasteland and things like this. Um, so within that, we're not really sure what public opinion plays, what kind of role it plays, uh, or how, you know, the pot is simmering uh, or boiling over. But these protests are indicative that Russians, now listen, their boys are going to go to war. And that's exactly what happened in Afghanistan to Mikhail Gorbachev, right? Where people said, that's enough. We don't want our boys to die anymore in a useless war. So, you know, in that sense, there's a certain amount of hope. But I'm always nervous because he's obviously uh, not in control entirely of the situation. And I don't know that he's got all of his faculties, to be honest. So hmm, he's doc- becoming increasingly a, a cornered animal. Dr. Arn Kislenko with us, International Relations Program, Trinity College, University of Toronto, and Department of History, Toronto Metropolitan University. As always, Arn, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, it's the Scott Radley Show. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Always well. How are you? I'm doing fine, thank you so much. I meant to talk about this yesterday, but then we got, uh, I think we started playing Bohemian Rhapsody. And we then did. We, and we it started was stuck singing. in my head all night, although the better version, because I played Queen to make sure I got the Trudeau version out of my head. Oh, man. And But anyway, uh, P.K. Subban announcing yes. his retirement. I remember very vividly uh, having both P.K. Subban and uh, Carey Price in the station interviewing them when they were Hamilton Bulldogs, when, of course, the Bulldogs were part of the uh, Montreal Canadiens organization. And and I remember then thinking, man, this guy has a magnetic personality. This guy is uh, is incredible. And I guess we're hearing rumors he could be ending up into the broadcast booth. But, uh, boy, he'd be a natural fit there. It is amazing to think that two of the most regarded prospects to come out of Hamilton, and there have been others, but two of the biggest ones are basically, it seems, done within about a week of each other Mm. which is just you know it's kind of it's just a bizarre way that this worked out because they weren't necessarily on the same team or at least their overlap wasn't the full amount of time anyway um yeah he he would be he would be terrific in the broadcast booth and uh you know he's always been a guy i when he was here he was i don't know 19 i guess you have to be at least 19 to or 20 i guess you have to be 20 to play Mm -hmm. in the ahl if you're an american north american so he would have been 20 and uh, he was already a guy who could talk your ear off and be yeah. entertaining. Yeah. And a lot of guys, I mean, look, I, I don't know how many you've dealt with over the years, but I've, I've, you know, dealt with a lot of the players doing that. And many of them, the step from junior hockey, the, all of them, almost every player to a man says the step from junior hockey to the AHL is vastly bigger than the step from the AHL to the NHL. It's mm. a huge jump. And all of a sudden you've been playing with boys and now you're in with sometimes 35 year old men and you're being paid and it's your job. You're not in school and all these things. And so many of them, they have so much stuff going on in their just figuring out their stuff that they're not really thinking about talking or answering questions. They just want to be done and get on. He would talk and talk 
and give great answers and talk. And sometimes it's like, okay, PG, yeah. do you don't have a meeting to go to? Like, okay, yeah. thank you. But he was great. He was fantastic. Yeah. And, and I remember I, I was, uh, I, well, he sent out a note the other day and, and he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something like, uh, I didn't let hockey, uh, you know, dictate my life. I was just a guy who played hockey, which meant he enjoyed the other aspects of life and hockey was just something he did. Yeah, and he, you know, he he was a, a suave dresser. Is that a word we still yeah. use? Suave? I don't know. Um, Suave. But he, he but he was he like he dressed to the hilt. Oh yeah. He had a he had you know he was had a relationship with Lindsey Vaughn, the Olympic skier, for a while. And I mean he's 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 done stuff. He's donated money to Montreal hospitals. Yeah. Like he, he's been out and around. I'll tell you a funny story. When he was here, the head coach at the time that he was here was Guy Boucher, who went on to be the coach of the Senators and. Um, Tampa Bay at one time and uh, Guy Boucher he told me the story one time that it was funny for about the first week that PK Subban was on the team uh, Boucher's style had always been when the penalty kill is going to go out on the ice he yells PK well like five times they almost got too many men on the ice penalties because he would yell <laughs> PK and Subban would jump onto the ice and it was the penalty killers that were supposed to go and that it took him a while to get used to that, and for Subban to you know sort of realize, yeah, okay, that's that's not me this time. But uh, no, he, you know what, he was he was. I don't think we can describe almost anyone as a Hamilton Bulldogs legend because they don't they're not around here long enough. Cor- yeah, uh, Carey Price probably fits that bill because of what he hmm. did to lead them to the Calder Cup and how unbelievable he was. But I would put PK Subban in a very small list that you would almost apply that to as a Bulldogs legend. What do you think is going to happen? What do you think he's going to end up doing? Well, he'll, exactly what you said. Somebody is going to yeah. look. What what doesn't he have going for him right now? Yeah, I mean, he's a point. Honestly, he's a, he's young. He's good looking guy, smart guy, guy, sharp he's a dresser. Good talker. Yeah, you know, let, let's let's not hide the, from the reality too. Uh, he's a minority at a time when hockey is trying to reach minorities. That's yep. he like he fits perfectly with so many of the things you would want. So. The, uh, unless he decides he doesn't want to do that, I guarantee you he's going to end up in the media somewhere. All right. Uh, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. You too. Well, no, you've had a great show, so have a great show tomorrow, and have a good night. <laughs> Thank you for that ahead of time. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Liz Russell uh, for producing as well as uh, Will Weber. And thanks to Diane and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the tax-paying customer, to have the last word. This is Tony LeBlanc. And I've been just listening to one of the experts saying that the Ukraine uh, would lose some of their property because Russia would uh, take take so much and then they, they withdraw, but they would only withdraw so far. That's wrong. If somebody steals something from you, money or robs you or something like that, you say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you half of it back. That's wrong. You take it all back. No, you can't. You can't settle for for half of what you had before because Russia made threats. That's wrong. And thank you very much. Yeah. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. <laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.